Gonna get me a shotgun and kill all the whiteies I see. <laughs> in hell a look back at saturday night live with your hosts matt d and keith brought to you by lion's den audio theater like and subscribe to lion's den audio theater for more lion's den goodness and here are your hosts keith d and matt Saturday Night Live, episode 11, with hosts Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, originally aired on January 24th, 1976. And again, it's Keith and Matt and Dee. Hello, Dee and Matt. Hey, hey. I'm live on the air. Tonight, we uh, we get our first UK hosts, and our first team host is Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Familiar with these two uh, gentlemen? Only Dudley Moore through uh, VHS comedy <laughs> shit. Uh, through my childhood, like Arthur and yeah. whatever the hell other VHS comedy he was in. That's how I know Dudley Moore. They gained a lot of prominence working as part of the four-person comedy team Beyond the Fringe. Cook is seen as the father of modern British satire. He was not just the forefront of it, he was it for a while. He was very active in opening opportunities for uh, comedic voices on the fringe, and is pretty much universally adored and um, the object of jealousy from comedians of his and later generations. John Cleese has said that it took Peter Cook about 20 minutes to write what would take him and Graham Chapman over six or seven hours to accomplish. For Brits, he was the comedian Comedian's comedian. Saying who he influenced among British comedians is sort of like saying what rock musicians uh, were influenced by Elvis. Peter Cook is this extremely well-respected uh, British comedian, so of course Dudley Moore is the one who becomes famous in the States. Um, Dudley Moore, he isn't as well-known as a writer, um, but he was probably, well, he was definitely a more diverse performer. He was in no way a lesser partner to Cook but he was less known for sort of his influence on comedy at the time. It's odd because when you see Cook and Moore together, Moore is usually the more grounded character. Now, if you look at the buffoons he played in the uh, films later, he was uh, a lot bigger and a lot a lot more showy there. He was born with uh, clubbed feet. The left of one never really responded, and he was always very uh, self-conscious about that and his height, which, uh, oddly enough, in, in the world of comedy, wound up, being sort of his bread and butter, especially his his height and his uh, just unique persona in general. At the time of their appearance, they were sort of at the end of their run as a pair. They had some different personal ambitions, and they had uh, personal demons. And they had maybe another three or four years of working together before they finally packed it in as a team. Dudley Moore gives me low-key Phil Collins vibes. <laughs> And our musical guest tonight is Neil Sedaka, and I'll talk about Neil when he comes up here. So, are you ready to rock on this episode? Ready. Begins with a cold opening, a rare live appearance by George Coe, who's with Jane Curtin. They found a bomb in their basement. Cop, uh, played by Garrett Morris, calls in the bomb squad. It's Chase. Chase goes to disarm the bomb, puts the bomb box on a crate. Then he gets the worst pie in the face in television history and gives live from New York. This was just silly. It didn't, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a strongly written uh, cold opening to me. It was very silly, and for that reason I liked it. I was very disappointed by the pie, though. 
Pi was a bummer, but uh, I agree. Like Jebby, he was my he was the star of the episode for me last episode, and uh, this continues to demonstrate why. Just such a comedic physical presence. And we go to our intro, and for the first time, Don Pardo actually says the prime not ready for prime time players' names. I love that. They are uh, consistently the best part of the show. They are why the show becomes this legendary classic. And if you read the history, they're the ones that are busting their ass. These people, Mm -hmm. they're using cocaine at uh, at like Tuesday at 2 a.m. just to get through those extra couple of hours to finish and get the show on the air. They deserve it. That's, That's all I'm trying to say. So then we head to the uh, monologue. Peter Cook and Dudley Moore talk about the differences between UK and US comedy, the subtlety, the sophistication, and then they ironically demonstrate it with their sketch, One Leg Too Few. Without getting into the sketch, how did the monologue work for you? I thought it was good. Like I, this, I'm not super familiar with these guys, so to see them come out, I thought it was a good exhibition of their personalities, and I thought it was, uh, I thought it was a nice amuse-bouche for what's to come. Yeah, I'm going to agree with that. Uh, got a few little chuckles out of me for sure. Uh, yeah, I liked how they said they've been performing in America for three years and have yet to get a laugh. <laughs> because <laughs> British that comedy gave me a laugh. Yeah, so highbrow. So then we go to uh, one leg too few. Peter Cook wrote this sketch when he was seventeen. Um, so this sketch had been done a lot over the years, but it be- and originally it was uh, Peter Cook with someone else, but it did become one of their uh, signature sketches. Basically, a one-legged man is auditioning for the role of Tarzan. I mean, this is brilliant. This is silly. It's great, great wordplay. It's tremendously performed. I-, I thought this was great. The words jungle stardom absolutely sent me over the edge. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was... Uh... I thought it was pretty funny. Again, this is, you know what, to be honest, I, I'm going to go on to enjoy this episode a fair bit. And uh, this is possibly my uh, the, one of the lower points of the evening for me, to be honest. I like it okay, but uh, spoiler alert, I really like this episode. And th- this is probably what I like the least about it. Best line of that for me is, I have nothing against your left leg. Then again, <laughs> then again, neither do you or whatever it is. So then we go to Lifer Follies. Peter Cook plays a director planning to stage Gigi with a bunch of death row inmates. George Coe plays the warden and Gilda is Cook's secretary. And they're holding auditions at the prison. Paul Schaefer is there in full prison garb playing the piano. Um, Dan Aykroyd plays somebody who went to a family reunion with a flamethrower and, uh, and and basically killed his whole family. <laughs> Which Peter Cook gives the line, I don't imagine you get much mail. <laughs> <laughs> Aykroyd's skit is that he dances with insects, but in reality he's you know perversely stepping on the index as he dances. He gets a very sick joy out of killing them um and then he's dragged out by the prison guards dan always feels like he's really there in his character and i really admire that yeah this is great this is a sketch that's really working with the performances dan Aykroyd really showing off here acting wise i, I thought he was great i i think everybody in this sketch is great the acting is really going to carry this for me our next inmate to come into audition is Chevy Chase as Clyde Sankyu, and he tells a joke with his name, Sankyu, you're welcome. His character's a pervert, and he attacks Gilda Radner a couple times. This was uh, definitely the most uncomfortable moment of the uh, episode for me. He's really funny, and he doesn't have to rely on such lowbrow humor, which he is doing. While I agree 
with the uh, comments about the content, uh, I continue to think he is a fantastic actor. And I continue to think that everybody in this sketch is really bringing it with the acting. You get lost in this sketch. Uh, and you don't do that without convincing players. I agree with that. Next up, we have Garrett Morris come in as Garrett Johnson. And he sings, Gonna get me a shotgun and kill all the whiteies I see. <laughs> Hilarious. This had me deceased. This was... Yeah. <laughs> This was peak humor to me, and I love seeing Garrett shine. This is highlight reel SNL for mm-hmm. me. Like It's a highlight for Garrett Morris. Absolutely. I don't know who wrote it. What a, I thought it was a winner. My laugh was ugly and intense. I had forgotten about this. This is Garrett Morris at his absolute best. And it's actually Garrett Morris's favorite Saturday Night Live moment. Now, who wrote it? There's a book uh, that came out in 1975. It's in my mother's basement somewhere, and I can't wait for this uh, lockdown to end so I can go down and go home and get it. In the book, it says Lauren Michaels wrote the song. However, Garrett Morris claims that the song was written by a racist woman who, instead of whiteys, said the N-word, and he saw it on a television in the 50s. And so he changed the tune a little bit and co-opted it and made it his own and knocked him dead. That's funny because that is exactly... That's exactly the vibe that I got from it, that he must have found this from somewhere and it was flipped the other way. And it's funny how I felt intuitive of that. Um, and finally, Belushi comes in. He, uh, I know, found this bit uh, on some trivia there. He, he uses the names, uh, well, there's a whole bunch of names they give him, but he introduces himself as Steve Bouchakis, which is the name of a high school friend. And uh, remember that name because we're going to see it a lot. He just uses it as a random name throughout his run. He sings the song That's Life, which was recorded by Sinatra, but other people did it. A couple of jumps here and there, and then he attacks Peter Cook and he's dragged out, but Peter Cook is impressed enough to cast him my crush only intensified during this little moment that he had this is my least favorite uh of the performances i'm on record i'm not the biggest belushi guy i'm not a belushi guy but i can certainly respect when he uh when he's bringing it when he's doing his best i don't know this was just uh this is just the least funny of them Great skit overall. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Garrett won the day for me, though, there. So now we go to Neil Sedaka. And uh, just to give some background, Neil Sedaka was uh, trained at Juilliard. He was a huge pop star in the early 60s in the bubblegum era with songs like Calendar Girls, Happy Birthday, Sweet 16, and Breaking Up is Hard to Do. And throughout the period, he was appearing on other albums as sort of a session musician and writing tons of music. Like a lot of people who were doing that sort of bubblegum stuff, his career was pretty much uh, squashed by the arrival of the Beatles and the change of music. He kept writing, though, and performing. He moved to Australia for a little while. He wrote songs for ABBA, and uh, his song Love Will Keep Us Together was a huge hit for Captain and Neil. He then somehow fell in with Elton John and signed with his Rocket Records, and that was in the early 70s. His latest release at this point was an album called The Hungry Years, which featured the Breaking Up is Hard to Do remix, I guess we'd call it nowadays, but the new piano version of it that we hear uh, during his first performance. I could reproduce Neil Sedaka's outfit in 90 seconds here. D, is that correct? That is absolutely correct. <laughs> this man is my fashion icon. What a handsome, smartly dressed man. This is how I would dress if I was if you were to say Matthew you're going to be on TV. Get dressed. Literally, it's in my closet right now. This it literally outfit. is. Somewhere between homeless Elliot Gould and dapper Neil Sedaka is mad. Is that what we're saying? 
Yeah, I, I think that's pretty fair. To the point where I literally have like this color combination and this chain available. I used to wear this when I was hosting the comedy nights. Like this is really my jam, fashion wise. I think this man looks brilliant. I love how much he loves being there. Neil Sedaka is having the time of his life. This is uh it's it's an okay song for me. It's decent. What a showman. I couldn't take my eyes off it. <laughs> One of my favorite musical performances so far. The audience popped off for this. I don't know how people were reacting to him at that time, mm-hmm. but the audience definitely lost it over him. The whole time he kept staring into the camera, which I'm not going to lie, I felt a little bit threatened, like it triggered my fight <laughs> or flight. <laughs> yeah, I loved this. This was good. Sure. But yeah, Neil, Neil Sadaka looking, I mean, he's having such a good time. He wants you to have a good time too. He's sending you the good time. I had it. I caught it. Yeah, we got it. We loved it. I am. I'm not disappointed. I'm just completely shocked. What did you expect? I didn't think he would like it. Yeah. Oh, big hit over here, man. <laughs> I love lounge lizard vibe songs. Oh, yeah. Performances. So our next bit um, is Don Pardo's Holiday in an Elevator. It's around the world in 80 floors. Um, Dan Aykroyd and Gilda Radner play some tourists who can actually travel the world by going up and down an elevator and seeing Dudley Moore in different costumes in front of a green screen. Keeps getting interrupted by different animals. And there's a fun bit with Chevy Chase being a a, kind of a twit at the end. Uh, Aykroyd and Radner are nice and silly. I didn't particularly like this sketch, though, too much. It was kind of kind of silly. But I think they were honestly having fun with green screen. Chevy Chase. Asking if they have anything to declare. And then that big smile. That's, uh, oh my gosh, the laugh that got out of me. It was the best part of the sketch. Uh, (laughs) I didn't, I mean, the rest of it was fine. It was, it was a cute joke. Dudley Moore just, you know, showing off. And and the other two just have to react. They're fine at what they do. Just green screen jokes. But uh, yeah, Chevy was the unique highlight in this Mm. Yeah, I agree with that. I know in like 2021, when we're recording this, we're kind of over the green screen. But I feel like if you had never really like outside of big films saw green screen before, this is really funny. It really shows their imagination that they're able to take advantage of that because it's it's literally not visibly there for them. And Mm -hmm. I feel like we discount that a little Mm. bit. And they're so early in on that. And they did a great job. So our next bit is just a little Chiron. This person knows Norm Crosby, who was a comedian at the time. And then we go to Weekend Update. Back to I'm Chevy Chase and You're Not. Francisco Franco is still critically dead. Um, He calls Angola again. He calls Jane Curtin, who lives with somebody named Angela, who's not at home. Lorraine Newman, as her reporter, interviews Garrett Morris and gets his views on abortion. And Garrett Morris says he hasn't had one and probably never would. Then we go to our first commercial. Working pretty good for me so far. I really enjoyed the line, who yanks the beads out? What the hell? (laughs) I was on the phone, yeah. Yeah. But then they say later somebody was stringing beads. I think it was Angela. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I think we all know, and I think they knew. Uh, But yeah, Chevy is so good at this, and at this point, like he's he's on a hitting streak. He's the baseball player that's going up and just hitting effortless casual doubles into left center field and just trotting off to second. He's uh, he's in the zone, and this is why he's the star, and this is why he's in the position he's in. And then we go to our commercial. Uh, It's the Middle America Van Lines. 
Um, we've seen this one before. D loved it. Matt liked it, and I wasn't so hot. Or we, st- I'm, I'm still not hot on it. D and Matt is still the same. I love it even more now. I, I stayed about the same. I was like, okay. yeah, it's cute. No, that's a lie. Matt laughed so hard Did I laugh over <laughs> when all the people are just standing in the moving okay, band. I, I was like, they do be standing there, and he absolutely lost. But I loved that I was laughing at you almost more than the than the program. Well, that was your favorite shot the first time around, too, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I do I do really like that ending. And then we bring out uh, Emily Latella, where she mixes up Soviet jewelry with Soviet jewelry. Um, more of the same, and uh, I didn't know exactly... Uh, I know what jewelry meant, but I didn't understand that that was the word she was mixing it up with. This one fell flat for me. Yeah, this is not a recurring character that works for me. This is such a, it's so one note. You know, your whole, this whole sketch, these, these, these entire several minutes, like Gilda's fine, but she's not doing anything that she hasn't done before. She's not telling a joke that she hasn't already told us. And you can't just keep running her out here. Well, I guess, the, you know, I say you can't just keep running her out here. They can, and they fucking will. But I mean, they're yeah. going to keep running her out here for the sake of this pun joke. And mm-hmm. I don't think it works. And I think it's really lazy. And I think it is just feeding into almost like the pop culture popularity of a character. I think this is one of the first times. And I think it's a good almost beta example uh, of what you will see later when when something might be popular with the crowd. But it's not necessarily a comedic success. You'll see these things later where something keeps coming back. And you're like, oh, fuck's sake they're doing this again and i feel like this about this already they're doing this again because it's probably popular with a with with, with whatever demo that they're trying to target or whatever but i don't think there's any comedic substance behind it uh because well there just isn't there's no joke it's just gilda being cute for a pun not great i don't like it I agree. Like, if you're going to deliver me a joke about a misunderstanding being funny, you have to give it, give me more than this. You can't just do the same thing over and over again. You're going to have to build on it beyond this editorial reply where I know the joke every single time, which is interesting because with a joke like Garrett Morris at the end of Weekend Update, that's something I find funny and look forward to. So it's kind of interesting to see them succeed and then fail at that kind of balance yeah yeah um and then we have uh <laughs> it's uh, chevy says they're not allowed to mention gerald ford by name anymore in clumsy uh, depicting him in a clumsy manner so he <laughs> he tells the story of an unidentified man who fell out of the second wind second story window of the white house I got a laugh out of that. The Ford, the Ford clumsy jokes at this point, I, I just, just because, because I'm watching the show, I just get them and Chevy just does them so well that, um, you know, they, they work okay on me. And then they, uh, combine their final stories of the night saying that George Foreman knocked out Beirut, Libya, or Beirut, Lebanon. Uh, I got a good kick out of that one. And we don't get Garrett again, but we do get uh, Alan Zweibel again as the president for the Society of Wet Americans, and he delivers the story from the shower. Are any of these non-Garrett ones working for you guys? No, they're not. It didn't work the last time, and it doesn't work this time. I don't uh, I don't know. They, I guess they're reaching. I don't know what they're reaching for. They, they want it to be different. They want it to be better. But yeah, no. Yeah, short answer, Keith. No. Okay, and then we jump to Peter Cook and Dudley Moore with frequently done sketch Frog and Peach. 
Peter Cook plays uh, Arthur Streeb Griebling. This is a character he, he brought out a few times. Basically an aristocrat who's completely out of touch with reality. He opened a restaurant where uh, people could get uh, big frogs and a damn fine peach. This was funny. It's Cook and Moore's greatest hits, you know what I mean? I enjoyed it, though, especially the the kicking of when when, when Cook crosses his legs and, and kicks the clipboard out of Dudley Moore's hands. You, you say that, that this was an often done sketch. I'd never seen this sketch before, never heard of this before, but my goodness, I loved it. This is the, Keith, I watched this today. It's the hardest I've laughed mm. so far at Saturday Night Live. Oh, nice. Stitches. It was the hardest I've laughed to date at this show. It really just set a new high bar for me. I agree. I I don't think I've laughed this much before this sketch. They're so good together. I have so many things to say about this, so I'm just not going to go too deep into this. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, funniest thing I've seen on this show so far. It's the type of humor that really gets me. Cook's like his physical humor when he's like s- switching his legs. I mean, back and forth, he kicked the clipboard initially. And, uh, you know, it is very, it's very John Cleese. I got John Cleese vibes from it uh, with the, the physical humor. My mm-hmm. gosh, like the, the, when he was describing the dishes, I was dying. Yeah, <laughs> the three thousand black tadpoles and the peach and peach. the peach ella frog. <laughs> uh, yeah. Frog out of ella peach and peach ella frog. <laughs> I uh, I can see why this because I'd never heard of it, Keith. I can see why it's a classic. This was the funniest thing that I have seen so far on Saturday Night Live. We next go to a Gary Weiss film, which is announced by Jane Curtin. And they go to Paramount Calendar and Novelties, uh, where a, uh, a lady who runs the store obviously loves her job. It goes through and shows different jokes and gags you can got there. And she explains it in a very, I don't want to say deadpan, but this lady could be talking about clothing or, or, or food. Um, again, this was another fantastic short film by Gary Weiss. I think this is a huge success. This brought me back to my childhood going to places like uh, the It Store and San Francisco and these these little weird novelty store, Big Boppers, another store when I was a kid. There was so much magic and mystery, and the shopkeep wasn't just some retail for hire nobody. It was somebody that's like, yeah, so this you're this one's gonna blow your mind man wait till i show you this one (laughs) and so it not only did it bring me back to my childhood but what a charming wonderful woman what a cool shop uh i thought this was brilliant i thought she was perfect this spoke to me personally home run this was amazing for me san francisco uh matt just said that that's my probably my first experience of getting that kind of feeling like that there was so much mystery that could be bought and i found that so fascinating and all the practical jokes the whoopee cushion i don't know i aspire to be this woman when i'm older like this is exactly who i want to be and what i want to do like if you're wondering who i picture myself as in 30 years it's her. This was just amazing. I, I really felt like she was being herself. It wasn't even like deadpan humor to me. I just felt like this was just her vibe. Like, this is the funniest shit. She knows her shop is amazing. And I loved it. Well, this store is still open. Paramount Calendar and Novelties. No way. Uh, oh my still God. open. 
It's been in operation since 1930. I, I couldn't, uh, unfortunately, I, I sort of researched this bit towards the end, and I couldn't uh, nail down who this woman is. But I, I got, I assume, with no frame of reference at all, that this woman's, you know, father or grandfather or uncle opened it, and it was a family deal, and she grew up in there. And, you know, I really got a nice feeling about this sketch and this woman and this store and yeah it brought me back to the uh i don't know if you remember fritzy's match but that's uh earlier than big boppers but uh, all the same sort of stuff you know you go into a store where it was whoopee cushions and plastic vomit and stuff like that of course i do it's like in that um it's in that like part of my childhood brain that day yeah uh, it's like an unlockable you know what i mean I, mm-hmm. I remember it as you say it. Okay, our next sketch is Peter Cook and Dudley Moore um, as the Scottish Sonny and Cher. They sing I've Got You, McBabe, um, another parody of the Sonny and Cher song, which is parodied all over the place. It's hard for me to find that really funny. Lily Tomlin and Scred did it only a couple weeks ago. A whole bunch of shots at Cher again. I didn't like this. This is two people, two comic geniuses completely out of their element, obviously doing other people's material. I will give them points for how much they actually did look like Sonny and Cher, though. (laughs) From a distance, you wouldn't have been able to tell the difference. This is drag culture. Like, this is gay culture. And I think Peter Cook, I really felt like he was really into this. Like, it wasn't cross dressing joke being in her position it really felt like drag show kind of vibes gay culture vibes kind of just little off-the-cuff jokes making fun of a man dressing as a woman that wasn't the center of the joke at all and i i appreciated that i appreciate that too and i totally get what you mean like yeah that's very like it's pretty much exactly what i would see pre-pandemic down at at the m&m bar down on goddard street here in halley But be that as it may, uh, to Keith's point, as soon as I heard a joke about Cher leaving Sonny Bono for Allman, I was like, yeah, these guys have nothing to do with this. They are trotted out here in costumes to read cue cards. Really took me out of it. Yeah, there was a Chiron that said one consenting adult means nothing. Oh, my God, I didn't even see that one. I must have missed it while I was writing down my notes. That's true, though. Yeah, it is. It's taken a long time for that message to get around. Literally, like, we're sleeping on that message. It's just some obvious shit. So next up is what I wrote down as D's Worlds Colliding. Scred <laughs> comes out dressed as a bee. And if anybody's looking for the perfect Christmas gift for uh, D, it's uh, to find a little stuffed animal of Scred dressed as a bee. Oh my god, anybody, if you're able to make this, like, <laughs> I will commission you. Okay, B Scred, oh my god, and Gilda Scred together. And a bee. Scred in costume. You could draw it. Why don't you try to draw it first? I might. I couldn't even take it. Like, he came out, he said, we're tired of being second class. I was like, the bees and the Muppets both, honey. And, and then the, 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 good evening, I'm Scred and you're not. I cried. This is what I want to see from the Muppets on Saturday Night Live. Where is their interaction with the rest of the cast? It felt like such a self-aware moment. Uh, I don't know if it came from Jim Henson, but I felt like it was Jim Henson saying like, why are you making this a separate part of the show? Like, why is this not integrated? Like everything else is. And I agree. I want this integrated. Huge breath of fresh air. Like this is this was like this is what exactly what DJ said. This is what I wanted of the Muppets. I want Sesame Street at an adult level, which is what this was. 
I don't want a space fantasy, extramarital affairs, this stupid talking statue. This is a million dollar idea that nobody could figure out. Or like, are you fucking kidding me? It's not that nobody could figure it out. It's just, you know, from what I hear, like the writers were just fucking couldn't give a shit. Jim Henson's just not a cunning enough comedic writer to figure it out. And I mean, what are actors going to do? They're just going to be there. Anyway, money left on the table with this whole concept. This is what it was all about, though. Scred literally got to intro the music this time. I popped off for that. I know I'm not the only one. You're not, because I I, too. So we've seen them do this three times now. It worked great with Lily. It worked great with Gilda. It worked okay with Candace. This is obvious now, guys. This is what you use them for. Right? It should be. It fucking should be, unless you're adult. Like, get it together. Stop doing these. I don't want... I shouldn't see another sketch. When when you've seen the results of what you've done, you have history to prove it. We shouldn't go back to the planet. I shouldn't see the statue again. There should be... There should be no more of that. I, I mean, I'm, I'm saying dump everything except Scred and and maybe me Plubis too. I mean, and Gilda's all in. Scred gets a little a little rapey there for a second, but she seems to get a kick out of it. He wants sure, to play yeah. with her. She's uh, go ahead, D. I don't think it's rapey because they have no. already established that kind of relationship before. I'm just saying they have established the flirtation. They That's have true. a little kiss, and Gilda goes in and kisses him at the end. They are there's some polyamory going on here. I'm just <laughs> oh, there certainly was. Yeah, <laughs> it's a fantastic point. In addition to the fact that nobody else can do this, uh, Lorraine Newman, Jane Curtin, n- nobody, nobody pulls this off like Gilda Radner with Scred. Um, and I did get a bit more. Um, the the reason Henson wasn't writing this was the uh, writers' union had a stink about it. So that's why SNL writers had to write the the Muppet stuff. That's the issue there. But again, I think Henson had a. Uh, I'd say Henson definitely had a big hand into what was going on. And they throw to Neil Sedaka, who sings "Lonely Night." This was uh, another song that Captain Captain and Tennille later made more money with. But for what it's worth, I definitely prefer Sadaka's version. It's just a weird fit for me, but I mean, I like Neil Sadaka. Uh, was this one as good for you guys as the first one? So much better. This one was more lively. It was bouncier. Sadaka, still into it. Not even breaking a sweat. Inhuman under the hot studio lights. Uh, the song is more upbeat. I'm surprised they didn't swap the order, but whatever. Because you know what? At this point in SNL... I like the uh, I like the energy boost. I like the adrenaline jolt. And Neil gave it to me. He's still looking into the camera. He's making eye contact. He's singing to you. He looks great. Still, he didn't change his outfit. This isn't a new outfit. I, you know what? If I'm Neil Sedaka, if I'm this successful fashion icon, maybe, maybe I Diana Ross it. Maybe I change my outfit. I might have changed my outfit if I were him. But but it's hard to improve on the perfection of that the outfit is initially. Anyway, I digress. I could go on. I won't. If I really feel that somebody loves what they're doing, I'm probably going to love it too. So I did love it too. I'm going to consider him a lounge daddy. Hashtag lounge daddy. That's who he is now to me. My only issue is that I felt a little bit threatened when we got to the lyric, hey, little girl, depend on me. But allegedly, he didn't write these lyrics. So I will try not to fault them for it. No, no, he wrote them. 
He wrote them. Oh, my Lord. He wrote those. Oh, man. Okay. He also wrote Happy Birthday, Sweet 16, which he sang well into his 70s. So. I'm literally calling 911 right now. <laughs> <laughs> different different time, though. Different time. <laughs> yeah, no, this was good. Uh, Matt, I think this is the first time since Billy Preston, and we're eliminating Art Garfunkel from all equations musically right now. It's the first time since Billy Preston that you've uh, liked both performances. I enjoyed this last performance by Neil Sedaka more than I enjoyed Art Garfunkel's performance. This is my new favorite musical performance on Saturday Night Live to date. I really thought this was the tops. We will hear Uh, a really brief clip of Frank Zappa during this episode that made Matt pop off more than anything else (laughs) during this entire season. So, I mean, I don't know what he's talking about. They play Frank Zappa music, like the bumpers, you know, when they go to commercials. The the music they play, they go into a Frank Zappa song. That's all that is. So we next go to Backstage Banter. It's uh, Jane Curtin again hosting a TV show with John Belushi, who is a female impersonating a man. She shows a picture of herself out of costume, um, and it's 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 uh, like a woman with her family. But uh, in costume, it's John Belushi. Belushi does a good Rod Steiger impersonation. This one wasn't funny to me at all, but I will say this is the only time in my memory of watching a sketch with John Belushi and realizing how much he can look like Jim Belushi. He looks just like Jim Belushi in this sketch. It tripped me out in this one. But I didn't think it was funny. Uh, It felt like they were kind of just like shitting on transgender people. I don't know. I don't know what was going on here. And if you didn't notice, the colors in the background were the color of the trans flag, which wouldn't wouldn't really come out until 1999. So I thought that was a really strange coincidence that that was popping up here. Interesting, yeah. I do agree. Quite a coincidence. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this isn't funny. Yeah. Lucy's always in the sketches that don't date well. I'm noticing that, yeah. Trying to put myself in the minds of the writers at that point in time. Belushi of the male cast would be be the ugliest woman, perhaps. I, I don't quite know. Yeah, and it's fair. Yeah, it's totally fair, Keith, as well. Because we don't that. know who's writing these. And, uh, you know, Belushi, Belushi doesn't run the show. You know, no. he goes out in there and he does what he's an employee. He goes mm-hmm. out there and he does what he's told. Although I do suspect Belushi wrote this one. Um, oh, Jesus. <laughs> I No, I have nothing to back that up, but it just seems like his. Are they trying to put him in this position always so he's kind of always a scapegoat for these these dirty, sleazy little jokes so that they have like a scapegoat guy? Because that's the vibe I'm starting to get at this point. I'm I'm more the opposite where I think Belushi is more prone to go for a cheaper laugh than the others. That's where I'm feeling. I'm going to remove Garrett from the equation because Garrett isn't writing much of his own stuff, but when you look at Chevy, Belushi, and Aykroyd, Belushi's stuff is definitely the least intelligent of the three. Am I off base on that? Or I mean, no, I don't think so at all. It all it's always pretty crude, pretty base humor. Yeah. This sketch, if we, if let's say we put it in 91, you wouldn't have seen Carvey do this sketch. You wouldn't have seen Phil Hartman do this sketch. This sketch would have been Mike Myers or Chris Farley. People sort of find their niches, right? So our next bit is a an ad. This actually appeared long, long, long ago in an, in an episode from like episode two or three, this uh, ad, but uh, we didn't get it on the DVDs. Um, it's uh, called Attractive. And it's Chevy Chase and Jacqueline Carlin, a very attractive couple walking around New York. And the announcer comes on and says, neither of these people use commercial products to look more attractive. I laugh. Yeah, I thought thought it was okay. I mean, it's a quick hit. It's fine. 
Chevy's handsome. There's no doubt about it. And yeah, and Carlin's nothing to sneeze at either. She's quite a quite a looker. Well done, Chevy. Our next bit is organ harvesting. Dudley Moore and Dan Aykroyd are playing doctors, and they're about to uh, take the organs from a cadaver, or uh, what they believe to be in a, ca- a cadaver, uh, played by Garrett Morris. Moore and Aykroyd ask the staff to raise their hands if they think the uh, the patient is dead. They all raise their hands, and then Aykroyd asks for any, or Moore asks for any objections, and Garrett Morris raises his hand, and they don't notice, and they proceed. This one felt python-esque actually nothing to write home about but it, it didn't bother me too much it was silly when Garrett raised his hand i laughed yeah that was the pop of the uh, sketch for me too and then we go to the gospel truth another beyond the fringe uh hit Dudley Moore playing Matthew, as in the gospel writer Matthew, and he interviews a shepherd named Arthur Shepherd, who was there for Jesus' birth. This is just another excellent sketch. It's really interesting to see how low-key the reaction was from the uh, U.S. audiences, but uh, well done by, by Cook and Moore. The U.S. audience slept on this. I could not stop laughing. Every line that was delivered made me die again. Um, we're swaddling atrocious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, like, later when Jesus, he was so polite, he adjusted his swaddle. (laughs) (laughs) Is this in addition to the peach and frog? Are these, like, classic sketches or classic bits of theirs that they're bringing to to SNL for the larger American audience? Yeah, One Leg, Too Few, uh, Frog and Peach, and, uh, and Gospel Truth are greatest hits, yeah. Gotcha. Well, I guess because, I mean, I because and I don't know them. uh, So I guess I would be one of those people that is appreciative of the fact that they got to do their classic material on this live broadcast. So I actually think it's really cool that SNL let them do this, that they recognize like, yeah, Mm -hmm. this is your hit. You go do this. And that they didn't say, hey, instead of doing because I mean, especially this one, this last one, this wasn't short. And, uh, the, you know, what the other one wasn't very short either. So they really gave them a lot of time. So somebody there definitely recognized this is fucking some good shit. Sure. So just just let them go do it. I never saw this stuff. I would never have seen this stuff if it wasn't on Saturday Night Live. And I'm sure that is the case for thousands of other people, uh, to say the least. So thanks to the show. Thanks to them. Loved the jokes. Loved the performances. I could go on, but, you know, we don't got all nice. Loved it. Great sure. sketch. Loved how it ended the show. So awesome that they got to do their own shit. And then we go to the goodbyes, and they reenact the pie in the face from the beginning so it could be done properly. Um, I like that they did that. I like that they did it, too. It felt... Do, like, do you think this was planned, like, do, or do you think... Was this an impromptu end? I, like, Keith, uh, sometimes... Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to ask you questions sometimes mm-hmm. that, that pretend like you were there, or, or like <laughs> that I just assume that you know everything. But uh, but I hope you understand that that's just because that that's your per- particular position on the show, is sure. uh, is the brain of the history. Oh, um, I 110,000 million think that this was, not maybe not spur of the moment per se, but when the first one effed up, I'd say somebody probably cursed backstage, and then someone said, we'll just go out and do it at the end. So let's go into our epilogue. Dudley Moore will return as host in 1986, but this is the last we're going to see of Peter Cook. The partnership between the two breaks up a few years later, pretty much for good, with a few guest spots every now and then. Essentially, Moore goes to Hollywood and becomes a big star. 
Cook goes back to the UK, although he did come back and forth between the US and the UK. Peter Cook had uh, serious issues with the bottle. It's couched that he, he, he probably had some sort of depression. People describe him as just being eternally bored with the world. They say he was a, a good guy when he was when he was sober and not always so when he when he was on the bottle. He did make a bit of a, a comeback in the late 80s, but then sadly passed away in 1995 at the young age of 57. You sad we're not going to see Peter Cook again? I am sad about it, actually. Terribly sad. Terribly yeah. sad. I, what a what a comedic presence, I thought, on this show. Uh, troubling news, TBH. Yeah. I'm worried we're not going to see anybody that really makes me feel the way he did on Saturday Night Live, but I hope. But what a confident, vibing guy. D even you said on the way out, when uh, at the end of the show, when he had the hat on, he's smoking, he's just, <laughs> he was living his best life. How did he die, Keith? I think it was technically heart, but there was chronic, chronic alcoholism there for a very gotcha. long time. Gotcha, okay. And I think he had beaten that. Like I said, he made a bit of a comeback uh, of sorts. He used to appear a lot on the, the talk shows in, in England, sometimes telling stories and sometimes playing characters. Um, and then I believe his mother passed away in 95, and he sort of spiraled down after that, unfortunately. Absolutely legendary. Like, we cannot fathom it on this side of the Atlantic how big Peter Cook was and still is and our musical guests so there's conflicting reports on Neil Sedaka too um, if he appears or not in a 1982 episode that I tried to get but I couldn't get quite yet but his music definitely shows up again uh, Neil Sedaka is one of the few surviving sort of is one of the few survivors of his era and he's definitely one of the United States most prolific singer songwriters of the last century he is still performing today at 83 and he's been married to the same woman for 59 years and neil sadaka is pretty much universally regarded as one of stardom celebrities truly good guys and just to give an example of that in april 2020 just last year he launched a series of free mini concerts on his social media channels as a way of entertaining people during who were stuck at home during covid every day the concert featured three of sadaka's favorite songs from his discography and then when he caught covid he had to stop for a brief month a brief minute but as soon as the doctor said he could go again he jumped right back in a slightly more reduced schedule and on january 4th of this year um, after recovering with no symptoms he started releasing his daily concerts again so good on neil sadaka agree what a talent and and a historic talent a once in a lifetime talent really i never thought neil sadaka you know what it's not really my kind of music but you know what i do love the lounge lizard vibe that D described as uh, described him as earlier. That's really aesthetically pleasing for me, and he really pulls it off. And listen, that's not what he's trying to pull off. That's not what he's pulling off from my aunt who bought all those Neil Sadaka albums. And so I'm sure, as far as Neil Sadaka is concerned, as long as you're buying his albums, it doesn't matter if you think he's a lounge lizard. Just, just enjoy, just enjoy the show, man. <laughs> I kind of get the vibe from Neil Sadaka that like he loves doing what he does so much he'd do it for nothing. And so yeah let's go into our uh our, our thoughts and our rewards um so uh, let's first talk about the music um i'll go first with sadaka he re- he performs a retread of his, one of his old classics and it, it's pretty good and then he does a, an upbeat one that is definitely like 70s neil sadaka he's an extremely talented guy this didn't work for me in the uh in the context of snl he was a teen idol like many other teen idols could have absolutely disappeared when the beatles came in but he kept at it 
good on him because he's you know he's almost 40 at this point and most of his contemporaries were you know working at the gas stations or something by then he's Um, only almost 40 at this performance yeah yeah he looks ghoulishly in his late 50s like he's he has makeup plastered on to retain <laughs> his youthful appearance. And that's a horrible look for the actual biological age that he is. Uh, love the performance. Great performance for me. You know how much I love that second song. I'm already yeah. on record. But what a what a shocking reveal of his age, despite <laughs> his appearance. Well, to be fair, at 83, he looks exactly the same with white hair. You know, you're right. So. You know what? You're right. He's timeless like that. I liked it. I didn't like the weird undertones he had about underage girls. Like that didn't really fly for me. <laughs> but what do you expect from a lounge wizard? And our hosts. Uh, I thought Cook and Moore did an excellent job with their own material, but like stuff like Ed Grimley or like Mark McKinney's Darrell or or when the Pythons later come on and do Python stuff, it's really it's not as effective in someone else's uh, sta- on someone else's stage. To their credit, the intro in the monologue explained it. Any musician can come on any show and do their greatest hits, and it'd be a huge a huge smash. But uh, with comedians, it doesn't seem to work that well. This stuff is great stuff. They did a good job, and they were great at that stuff. Uh, medium to shitty, doing other people's stuff. This is a 10 out of 10 for me. They are my favorite hosts. They integrated the best into the cast for me. I loved it. I loved it. Peak humor the whole way through from them. <laughs> I agree and disagree with D. I don't think I've seen somebody blend in with the cast as well as Elliot Gould has. I felt Elliot Gould was a not ready for primetime player uh, during his performance. So I disagree with that part, D. But I thought this, I thought, first of all, I, I hate that I have to lump them together. Dudley Moore didn't do as much. He just didn't. He didn't I do agree. as he didn't do as much for me. He was a bit more of a straight man, and I get it. Everybody needs a straight man. A straight man is very important. And you know what? Who am I to say that maybe this is the straight man that he needs specifically? Not. The, and you know what? Sometimes they even both play the straight man. I should not question the comedic chemistry that these two obvious professionals have together. I thought they were brilliant. They were on the level of Richard Pryor for my favorite hosts of Saturday Night Live so far. Their sketch about the peach and frog or the frog and peach was the most I have laughed at this show so far. And that's why I'm here. All right. And uh, let's see. Your your worst sketch of the night or worst thing of the night. My worst thing of the night is going to go to the Belushi uh, sketch. He is a he is a woman disguised as a man. And this this was terribly misguided. And uh, Belushi didn't do it particularly well. He was just shitting through it. Everybody just shat through this relatively offensive sketch. Yeah, I agree. The Belushi sketch was not good. I did not like that. I don't want to see that energy again. Don't give it to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm right on the same page with you guys. The uh, the best sketch or bit of the night. The frog and peach. It was just, it was the funniest thing I've seen on this whole friggin' show so far. Me too. Peak, peak, peak humor up the top. Uh, for me, um, I, I kind of, I kind of had to look at this as two shows in one. Um, and uh, taking the 
Cook and Moore thing and sort of casting it aside, looking at the Saturday Night Live created stuff. For me, it was the Gary Weiss joke shop movie. Yeah, um, and I, I think that that's an important thing to bring up, Keith, uh-huh. is that these guys got to come in here and do something that was a bit greatest hits for them. You know, I know that, and knowing uh-huh. that and picking it as my favorite, I'm like, eh, I don't love that. It did make me laugh the most. I have uh-huh. to pick it. But um, but I, it's with an asterisk, I guess, if I may, because uh, because you're right. Because I also agree that that and, you know, not unlike what I felt about his other film, I really think these short films are something so unique and wonderful on television that I just they they really I'm fucking really impressed on an artistic level that is outside of this show entirely. I love these. I agree. I hope they were paid uh, the way that (laughs) was paid for this because it exceeds. It so (laughs) exceeds the talent that was given to us there. They definitely did not get Albert Brooks money for this. It's a shame. No, that's geeky. And we've now seen four gary weiss films now the first one was a complete flop with us but uh the next three have been fantastic you know just really enjoyable he's very talented it's obvious he knows what he's doing yeah and your uh your star of the night neil sadaka i choose scred awesome (laughs) i did not see that Um, I stick with the not ready for primetime players, and for the first time, I'm going with Garrett Morris. Life or Follies thing had me in stitches, and I absolutely loved his, uh, nope, never had an abortion. Nope, probably <laughs> uh, In my humble opinion, the actual Saturday Night Live content was pretty friggin' weak here. The highlights were the Cook and Moore pre-existing stuff in the Gary Weiss film. Um, again, this seems like a time where people are getting tired, and it's time for a break or some new blood or something. Sadaka was excellent, and if I was a bigger Sadaka fan, I probably would have loved this. Um, So for me, the SNL-produced stuff, uh, the not-ready-for-primetime-player stuff, would get a 3 from me. The other stuff would get a 7. So I'm settling on a reluctant 5. I'm going to give it a 7.5 out of 10 this time. I found myself laughing a lot more than I do usually. The energy was there from beginning to end, so yeah. 7.5. 7.5. I could almost give it an 8. I could almost give it an 8, but there was that there was a little bit of racism in there, a little bit of trans hate in there, so that took it down. I'm certainly leaning more personally toward the D side of things as far as a generous rating is concerned. I really enjoyed the greatest hits tour of our two English hosts. I thought Neil Sadaka was a fantastic musical guest continues to be a style icon well into the 21st century i would give this episode thanks to a strong weekend update as well and another strong performance by chevy chase on this episode 7.5 out of 10 for me on this episode that ties uh that ties your record matt i'm not surprised d it's your second highest rating i'm not surprised i thought it might be my highest it's a little under elliot gould Okay, that's fair. Our scores, I gave it a 5. Matt, you were 7.5. D was a 7.5. That averages out to 6.7. And the IMDB folks gave it a 7.3. Oh, awfully close then. Yeah, yeah, that's very close. Uh, This was a fun episode to record. I had a lot of fun. This was one of my favorite episodes of the season so far. If not my favorite, but I mean, that's too close to call. 
But uh, I tell you what, I think the show's on a roll, and I'm really looking forward to the next one. They've got me at that point where I where I definitely want to see more. I just want to see more of these. Uh, I'm getting hooked. So our next episode is uh, episode 12, and it's our episode 12 as well. And this one will uh, feature Dick Cavett and Jimmy Cliff. So until then, if you happen to find yourself in Don Pardo's holiday in an elevator and you press the button under basement, you won't find Dudley Moore in a ram. You'll find me and Matt and Dee here in SN Hell.